Welcome to the Mad Singers Management Podcast from madsingers.com, where entrepreneurs and business managers learn and share. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Damien Thompson. Welcome to the show, Damien. Thanks, Mads. Uh, good to be on. Excellent. Damien, everyone in the world is not aware of who you are yet. Would you mind sharing? Well, supposedly they're not. Uh... I would say most of the people in the world are not. <laughs> I, 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 my wife loves to say that I'm really famous in a very tiny corner of the internet. <laughs> so, you know, but uh, outside of that tiny corner, I'm not well known. So yeah, so my name is Damian Thompson. Uh, I scale sales. So I um, am the co-founder of a company called LeadFuse, which is a lead data software company. Uh, and I'm the founder uh, and chief scale officer of a company called SalesAbility, which helps uh, founders and small business owners uh, scale their sales efforts past themselves. So generally, most service or software businesses, uh, the founder is forced to do sales themselves at the beginning. Uh, I actually think that's a good thing. So you can figure out kind of how to build your sales, you know, your messaging and all the rest of it. But then taking that big jump from founder-driven sales to actually team-driven sales uh, is a bit scary for most people that are either creative or technical or don't really come from that sales and marketing background. So I help them figure out the, the best and, and, and least painful path to, to growing their business through building sales teams. That sounds like a lot of fun. And it definitely sounds like something that a lot of my audience is interested in and struggling with. So uh, I'd say a lot of, a lot of the, the guys sort of in my audience tend to be that there's a fair mix between e-commerce, a lot of SEO, a lot of agency type people. Yeah. And they, they're definitely ones that are tr generally trying to scale sales and, and really struggling with it. So I'm yeah, sure it's hard, you know, I think, sorry, I, it's, it's hard. I think that, so I'll, I'll give my brief history and my medium sure. story history, and then I'll get kind of become clearer of like how I got where I am today. So you know, I spent, you know, from kind of the mid 90s. So I started selling software uh, in the mid 90s. And then for about 15 years, worked at companies like Semantic and Trend Micro and McAfee, kind of an entrepreneur before we called that, started calling it that. I'd travel around the world and set up sales teams in brand new countries for these big Fortune 500 companies. Um, and so I learned how to be an enterprise salesperson. And, you know, at the time, uh, that's where most of the methodology was focused, the spin and the target account selling and those kind of things. And so you know, in 2010, when I kind of burned the suit and tie, tried to figure out this online thing, uh, moved out to Asia and said, you know, I'm going to build like this kind of outsourced sales business for other people because I love building sales. Teams. I spent 15 years building, learning how to become, build really good sales teams and loved it. And uh, then couldn't quite figure out how to do that you know, for the like, kind of the people I liked, was hanging out with. I was hanging out with founders. Right? I was hanging out with kind of small business owners, uh, agency owners, things like that. People with, you know, less than hundreds of staff. Uh, and so I couldn't really figure out how to do that. So what I was doing was, is I was creating done-for-you service agencies. So Lynchpin was my first one, which was a content marketing agency. Uh, then I had some lead gen. So, but I kept on building these service companies, not because I loved the service so much or because I was an expert in that service, but I was trying to grow it fast enough to build a sales team. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, and then, you know, frankly, just recently, the last couple of years is when I realized that actually, you know, there is a part of the market that I could help them build their sales teams. I can get the endorphin rush I love of building sales teams, all that experience I have, um, and then not have to kind of build like a company I don't want to build just in order to build a sales team. And so it's been kind of a, a great congruence, but I mean, it took a lot of pain and effort to get there because most sales advice is wrong because it's aimed at the wrong people. So right now, the noisiest part of sales and even sales hiring and sales management advice online is driven by the tech sector. 
right? And so the problem with the tech sector is, is the people that allowed us and have the most money to spend are the ones who are VC funded. So they throw money and people at problems. Well, and, and generally not the most salesy people either. Right. And so well, the problem is that we don't have the money to do that, right? If you, even if you're successful, you got a, you know, you're running an agency and you're doing a million dollars a year, you don't have, you can't spend 400, 500 grand to experiment with salespeople, right? I mean, you've got to get it right, right? And so uh, there's this kind of gap. Or on the other end, it's all about kind of like retail or, you know, the kind of consumer sales, you know, real estate sales or car dealerships or whatever. And so there's this kind of gap in the middle for like, B2B service providers or B2B software companies, um, which is generally where I focus on kind of B2B. But, um, you know, and, and that's because, you know, again, it's not that the device is like incorrect for their audience. It's just their audience is very small, but they have the loudest voice. And so, you know, you're a founder and you've, you've had success. You've struggled through this. You figured out how to get your business to a couple hundred grand a year, you know, but now you're finding you're spending all your time selling and you're not actually, you don't have enough time to be the CEO, right? To be the people leader. Um, and you don't have enough time to do product development or market development or kind of focus on other things. And so generally the path of management of when you're the owner or founder of the business is you do everything at first. Then you start figuring out ways to kind of start offloading the actual doing of the task, right? So and then you figure out ways to maybe offload kind of maybe some of the management of the doing the task, then maybe some of the marketing. And then sales is kind of last, which is actually probably right. Um, and one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is they try to rush that step too fast because they say, hey, I want to get sales off my plate. I don't like this. I never considered myself a salesperson. I don't want to be a salesperson. I've been forced into this. So the sooner I can get out, the better, um, which is you know, a, you know, a path to ruin, right? It's like you, when we hire people, and I make this mistake. I've done it multiple times now on the marketing side of I get to a thing and say, well, hey, I need to be doing 100 things. I'm only doing two of them well on the marketing side. Let me hire a talented marketer to come in and help me build the other 98 things. It doesn't really work out that way, right? I mean, if that person was entrepreneurial, if that person was a builder, they'd be building their own thing, right? And so generally what happens is we kind of force people into roles they're not going to be successful at, and then we're surprised when they don't have success. Uh, and I find that's the real key to management across the board, but especially in sales hiring, is that we have unrealistic expectations, but also we don't kind of set them up for success. We set them up to fail and then blame them for failing. Um, and so it's about kind of being introspective when it's your business, when you're a senior manager or you're the founder or owner of the business, like all the mistakes are your mistakes, right? All you have responsibility for everything, but it's just about kind of taking a, a, a step back and looking at what problems you're trying to solve. Have, can I solve, have I figured out how to solve them on my own? Then maybe I'm ready to start thinking about hiring people to solve the problem as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes a ton of sense. And uh, I heard rumors about a guy who once started hiring salespeople too early. Uh, I don't yeah. want to mention his name, but uh... it I, I mean, I've done it. I mean, so but internally is a funny thing, you know, so in Leadfuse, the software company I'm a co-founder of, you know, it sometimes it takes a while to figure out the model. And so when we first build that, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Yeah. And so I build sales teams. And so I came in and said, let's build a sales team. And so we started building a sales team thinking that we're going to build this big enterprise type sales business. And it turned out that wasn't really the key market for us. And so we had the kind of visions of this software being, you know, this kind of end to end, you know, multi-channel marketing software, outbound marketing software. And it turned out the real problem people want to solve was good data. They wanted good, clean data. And so when we started solving that problem, we realized, Hey, 
the product we actually have doesn't need a big meaty sales force to sell it, right? It needs education. It needs, the product needs to be good, needs, you know, this kind of thing. And so, um, you know, we just kind of modeled and, and tested a bunch of different sales platforms or, you know, kind of sales models and, and number of scale and scope, but also pricing models, right? So we had to figure a lot of that stuff out. Then we figured all that stuff out. We realized, hey, that's actually not what we need. We can automate some of this. We can do the rest of it. So we don't have like a large sales team doing it. We don't drive people to demo calls and all that kind of traditional enterprise software stuff that again, like I'd come from that. So everyone can make the mistakes. I think the key thing is minimizing the mistakes in the hiring process and then having a clear plan to measure them in the early days. Cause I talk about this hundred thousand dollar mistake, which is you hire someone incorrectly, but then you keep them way too long. Yeah. Um, and then it happens in sales a lot because like, you know, A, you have oversized expectations about how long it's going to take and then you realize it's going to take longer. Well, now you're five, six months in and you're still not where you want to be revenue wise, but you want to give them just one more chance. So you give them another quarter. Well, now you're way into this thing and forget even opportunity cost and all the rest of it. Just the actual yeah. cost of that person can, can get up to a hundred grand. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, you really want to have a clearer plan of what you're looking for. And then for me, the big one is actually on the onboarding. It's having a clear plan for are they successful at 30, 60, 90 days? And that's probably not revenue driven. It's probably activity driven. It's probably something else, but figuring out what those metrics are, you can measure. And then finding out, look, there's really only two people, two reasons that you, you know, someone's not working out a role if you've done your job. And so I think the job of the leader is to say, look, my job is to give you all the tools and resources you need to be successful to remove as many of the roadblocks as possible. And then to kind of give you the direction you need to go, it's your job to do the work. Right. And then, so, but if I haven't given you all those tools and resources, then it's on me. If I have given you all the tools and resources, then it's on you. And it's either because you're unwilling, which is a pretty easy decision if you're tracking it, right? Or it's because you're unable. And if you're unable, then it's my job to give you more tools and resources and training and the rest of it. But even then, sometimes people just aren't a good fit for certain roles, right? And okay. so it's being able to say, look, give you all the tools and resources, give you the training you need for this. This is not working out. And then I think a big mistake we make in the small business is we try to put them somewhere else. Right. In big companies, we wouldn't do that. Or if we would, there'd probably be more roles for them to fit into. But you get in trouble there too. Like, hey, really like this person. They're trying hard, but you know, they're just not a good fit for this sales role, this marketing role, or something else. Let's find something else for them to do in the organization. We usually can't afford that. You know, if you're sub 50 employees, you probably don't yeah. have the, the bandwidth or the money to, to afford to put pe good people in roles, right? So yeah. that, that's it's, it's hard because no one wants to go to someone and say, hey, look, sorry, you're not working here anymore, right? That's a difficult thing to do, even in the best of circumstances. But the best way to kind of guard yourself against that is to kind of take a little of the emotion out by having clear objectives of what you want to accomplish. Yeah, no, I'd say one thing that I definitely like a lot of the people I coach to what I see around salespeople is, it's not just that they hire them too early, but, but from my point of view, at least they hire them before they have become really, really clear on what they offer, right? So they start a SEO agency or something. And what happens is they, they haven't really nailed down a niche. And, and what happens is, you know, people often sort of flap around for a year or two or three before they kind of realize, oh, right, we have this customer and this niche, maybe we should just focus on that, right? And that's when sales becomes so much easier because when you're trying to sell everything to everyone, that's always really difficult, right? And I yeah, see- Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. No, as a salesperson got getting into a role like that again, like exactly as you said, you're setting them up for failure, right? Because, yeah. Yeah, you have to know who you serve and how you serve them. And and again, you know, I think that it's it's easy to give advice. It's hard to take it sometimes. You know, I've been talking about you know niche until it hurts for a decade now. 
but then even in my business, you know, when I, you know, when I kind of left the day-to-day of LeadFuse about 18 months ago because we had the, the kind of sales automation all set up and started focusing on other things and got back into kind of consulting and coaching and consulting, you know, I was like, great, I want to help founders of B2B service companies. That's still too broad a niche, right? And so then you can either say, great, I can niche down into, you know, a, t- a target, like an even tinier vertical or into like actually a part of that journey. And so it took me some trial and error, basically most, the end of 2018 and most of 2019 to figure out, you know, really where I can do the most, the most benefit people is people that are, you have kind of figured out that market, right? Fig- figured out who they serve and how they serve them. And now what they need is they need the operations, the skill set, all that to be able to go past founder life sales. So it's really about, are you planning or do you want to hire a salesperson in the next 12 to 18 months? If yeah. you do, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of difference. Even if you're successful now, you're doing a couple hundred grand a year selling yourself. Understand, even if you got a brand, even got a company, you're selling yourself. Like so, even though you can get away with things, the sales guy can't as the CEO, founder of a business, as an owner of the agency, because you've got the passion, the drive, the know with all. You know your market, all these things that just inherently they're not going to have. And when they sell, they can't sell you. They got to sell the company. And so that's a big gap that time. It's people, they sell themselves, not thinking they're selling a company, but really they're selling themselves. And they get pretty good at it because that's, you know, you get pretty good at selling yourself. But then not putting in the systems in place, not putting the operations in place, not understanding that, you know, how to actually run a sales team, how to hire for sales success, that sort of thing. And so that's where I'm focusing now is on people that are saying, hey, I, I want to actually, I know that I need to build a sales team, you know, sooner rather than later. How do I get ready for this person to come on board or, or people to come on board to make sure they have success? Because the great thing about hiring salespeople is, is it should be the most high R, highest ROI position you hire for, right? It should be you hire for ideally. that. Ideally. Ideally. I'm saying it should be, right? So, but it's not very often. I mean, it should be at scale, right? It should be once you get it right. Um, now, it doesn't mean you can just throw salespeople. It doesn't mean, hey, I'm doing a million dollars with one salesperson. I'll just hire 10 sales. We'll do 10 million. The math doesn't quite work like that, right? There's still market size and opportunity and lead flow and a bunch of other things. But again, those are things people don't understand. And so now yeah. I can take my 20 plus years of doing this and kind of help uh, entrepreneurs figure out and, and kind of help them not make, make fewer bad mistakes, I'd say. Right. So, and what, what, what is the sort of top two, three things that you actually do? Like when you start working with an entrepreneur who have yeah. – sort of the basics figured out, like what, yeah. what are the top things that you actually work with them on? So I think the first thing is we want to figure out, so if, we, if we're talking about like hiring specific, so we have to, so I think the starting point is you have to have a sales process that's repeatable and scalable. And so a lot of times they figure that out pretty well, say 80%. So it might be just that last 20%. But a lot of times it's tying that into operational tools. And so, yes, like CRM and marketing automation tools come front of mind and they're probably the most important. But more important than that, it's just like, hey, you can get by on doing this with a spreadsheet or no CRM or a CRM you're barely using, but that's not using what those tools are actually meant to do. Like the CRM should be that kind of the sales brain. Like I, you shouldn't have to remember who to follow up with or who to call or the last time you contacted them. Like those things can be done better by software than they can by the human brain. And so do you have those processes SOP'd out? Do you have those playbooks in place so you can get past yourself? And that's a sticking point a lot of times because you've done it on your own and you say, hey, me stopping doing other work to document some of this stuff is a sticking point. But that's the kind of stuff you have to do if you're going to hire other people. And so it's making sure you've taken your internal process in your brain and put it down. And when I say this, I'm not a huge, crazy 100-page SOP guy bullet points to start who cares but just make sure it's documented somewhere so that's the first piece the second piece is just understanding defining actually what kind of sales role are you hiring for there's a there's essentially three types of sales people you know quote unquote 
So there's, you know, there's lead generators, right? So like opportunity generators, there's revenue generators, the people who actually get them to sign on line, and there's revenue expanders, right? Customer success, account management, that sort of thing. It's understanding which of, which of those three functions you want them to do. And many times for small businesses, is, can they do two of the three? Can they do three of the three? I would generally say you can't do three of the three, but two of the three is not a bad way to start. And so this is, again, where some, some bad advice out there. So you read predictable revenue, you read the you know, sales hacker, you see all these kind of tech-driven sales process, and they're all like hyper-specialization, you know, hyper right? I've got BDRs or SDRs that all they do is lead gen. Well, cool, that works when you can afford that. And even then, it's, not, it's showing its wear and tear now because they're just turning into form takers, well, I can just do that up with a form, right? I don't need that, right? What, what people want, what a customer wants in their sales process is, is they want to, you know, feel like they're getting their questions answered. They want to feel like they're not just being driven down the same tack everyone else is. They want to feel different than everyone else. And yeah. so trying to force them into our process that isn't work, it's inefficient, is something we do a lot because we're, we're modeling companies that aren't like ours. And that's, a, I think, a big, a big problem. And so it's about saying, great, where can we do this? And a lot of times, I think the way to do that is saying, well, in the old days of sailing, selling 20, 25 years ago, we used to talk about hunters versus farmers, right? And so it was just kind of you generally, most people in sales have a predilection to one or the other. Now, you can become good at both. I'm a hunter. I love the, I love the hunt. I love the win. I love the learning new things. I love going, getting new customers. I love doing all that. So then maybe then if you're hiring for someone like that, they'd be doing some lead generation and revenue generation, right? Signing them up as well. And then you have a different account management or customer success function. Right. And that you could do it that way. Many times as a founder, the best way to do it is say, hey, I'm going to be the account management function. I need this or I'll be the person who's actually getting the sign of the bottom line. What I need is someone who can kind of go find them and they can kind of manage them after the sale. Right. Because I'm great yep. at doing the, the presentation. And so it's defining what roles who's going to play, including yourself. Understanding. And the last one is understanding, OK, when I onboard them, how do we do it? So like the biggest thing I can say about hiring for sales, what makes it difficult is. You know, I spend a lot of time in tech and spend a lot of time hiring salespeople and sales engineers, and I've hired well over 500 people in my career. And I, my first kind of hiring maxim was engineers complain and salespeople are lazy. Now, that's not accurate, right? But there's some truth to it. <laughs> and there's some truth to it because, look, it makes sense. Engineers complain because their problem is a problem solve, right? Their problem is to look for problems. So that's what they do, right? And so they look for problems. And so when they look for problems, sometimes that means they look for problems everywhere, right? And so, and they're very process-oriented. And so they're, they want efficiency. And so that, that's why it says, and on salespeople, it's not that they're lazy so much. It's that, you know, they're looking for shortcuts. They're looking for ways to kind of cut corners because they want it to do volume. They want to do more. And those are actually in by themselves, good features to have or good kind of personality traits to have for those roles. Unfortunately, they can obviously extrapolate down to bad things. On the yeah. sales function, it's one of the few white collar professions where you can make six figures a year and the difference between being mediocre and being great is your work ethic, right? And yeah. we say things like work hard, smarter, not harder. Well, that's kind of BS in sales. In sales, you need to work smarter and work harder. Like yeah. if, you, if you're twice as good at me at selling, but I work three times as hard, I'm gonna win more. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just, it's, like it's, that's the reality of it. And even when you get good, the reality is, is that there's a, there's a, there's a kind of human nature that Haslow's micro, yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like, Hey, I'm doing good now. Take my foot off the accelerator a little bit. Right. Where instead yeah. what should be happening is I'm doing good. Let me continue those good habits I had of prospecting, of doing the hard work, of doing the grind stuff. Cause that means I can go from good to great. But it doesn't yeah. happen. It's not, it's not human nature. And so it's about you understanding that and understanding when you're doing that and doing it, but also hiring for it. It's really hard to hire for work ethic because 
how do you test that, right? I mean, you know, you ask their references, well, they're only going to give you good referrals, right? And so anyone can be, especially if you're not a sales background, anyone can BS you for three or four interviews. And so you want to set up kind of, you know, tests during the recruiting process to see if they are actually a worker or not. And that literally asks them to do like little bits of work, right? Hey, here's some essay questions, right? Here's this, you know, so more than just a, you know, hey, let's get on a phone call and I'll go through my 20 set standard interview questions. It's let me give you an assignment to do and see if you come back and you'll find that people will wash themselves out. They just won't do the work. Now yeah. they'll tell themselves a bunch of reasons why they won't do it. Oh, I won't do free work or whatever. But that's nonsense. If they want the job, like a salesperson that understands what's going on, that actually has the kind of mindset you want, understands that the job interview process is the biggest sale they're going to close for the next couple of years. Right. If they're going to make 100, 200 grand a year working for you, like if they close a deal, they work for you for three years. I mean, that's a half a million dollar sales opportunity. Right. So, I mean, like that's huge. That's bigger than anything they're going to sell for you. And so if they don't take that seriously, if they don't treat that with the kind of respect it deserves, that's a good sign. They're probably not going to be the same for selling your product or service. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say from an interview standpoint, like the, the one thing I always have when, when I'm teaching people interviewing and so on is it's very much this aspect that, you know, sales type people are very good at selling themselves. Right. And they're very good at selling themselves even into roles that they don't like and they're not good at. And it's actually one of the most sort of, it's one of the easiest. It is. And this is, and this is where the BDR, yeah, the BDR position came from this whole idea of, you know, Everyone will tell, every salesperson in the world will tell you during the interview process, they love cold calling. Oh, I love prospecting. I love this. And they'll tell you, and you'll want to believe them. They don't love it. I'm really good at cold calling. It's hard. It's a grind. It's difficult, you know? And so like, it, it's no one, but again, you're right. Like they're trying to, they're selling you, they want the job. That's what they're trying to do. So you have to understand in that thing where we get excited, we sell our company. And I talk about happy years. Like a lot of salespeople have happy years. A lot of founders have happy years, which means they hear the happy part of the sentence, not the bad part of the sentence, right? Yeah. So, hey, you know, I love prospecting. I haven't done it in a long time, but you know, I love it. I used to, when I used to do it, I used to do it all the time. Oh, great, he loves prospecting. No, no, no. What you should have heard was he hasn't done it in a long time. Right. Like that's the part that you should have heard. Cause that yeah. means there's a reason why he hasn't done it a long time. It's probably because he doesn't like it because it's hard. It's a grind or whatever, or he's going to come in expecting leads to be handed to him or whatever it happens to be. And so what you have to do is you have to put your kind of cynical hat on a little bit when you're, when you're recruiting, I think all recruiting, especially for sales in yeah. that, you know, prove it to me, show it to me, right. The same way I'd want you to kind of show me success stories or demos or, you know, whatever it is in the, in the buying process, it should be the same when you're hiring as well. Yeah, I mean, my, my philosophy is very clear. Like, I always tell people, you should look for reasons not to hire someone right. instead of looking for reasons to hire them, right? Well, and that's, and that's, that's a great thing. I talk about that from a sales philosophy point of view. Like, that's what your customers, that's what your prospects are doing when you're trying to sell them something. They're looking for a reason to say no. Right? They're yeah. looking for a reason. They, they might not even know it. They might think they're looking for a reason to say yes. They might come looking to you to solve a problem, but they're not. They don't. Change is difficult. Change is hard, right? Your competitor's status quo when you're talking, when you're selling at somebody else, and so they're subconsciously looking for reasons to say no. And I agree, you should take that kind of prospective buyer mentality when you're recruiting. Of you know, you know, look for those red flags, but then even the yellow flags. You know, is that yellow red or is that yellow green, right? And so, and if it is yellow, again, name it, right? So if there's an elephant in the room, let's give that elephant a name. Let's talk about it. So one yeah. of my favorite things I do on my initial interview is, so we, so I sent out a list of, so I do the first screening, then we send out a list of initial questions for the answer. And I'm looking for red flags there. Like, and like 
I'll it's basically it's a mini discovery. It's like a nine questions and like one question is like, hey, can you tell me about your best boss you've worked for and why? Hey, we've all had bad bosses. Can you tell me about a bad boss and why? And there, what I'm caring about there is I just don't want them to give me a name of somebody. I don't want them to like there's red flags there. Someone says, oh, yeah, I worked for Bob Dole and he was a horrible human being. And like, that is not a good sign. Right. Like you shouldn't the same way you don't want them talking shit about your competitors. It's, right? so you don't want them doing about the same thing about their previous jobs. It's one of my favorite, exactly that question, uh, right. both of those questions I, I use. And basically, but the way I've worded it is to say, I don't, it's okay people saying, you know, this was the worst boss I've had. But there's a very different approach, like that. there's a big difference if you say like, you know, this guy wasn't great because, you know, this was how he treated people and this is why we, we didn't get the right result. But that's a big reason if, if the person takes responsibility right. from their performance right. or if they're playing the blame game and blaming everyone else for their failures, right? So that's and I think there's, and there's magic in doing them back to back too, because kind of again, like it's it's almost exactly. like they're tripwires, right? I'm trying to trip them up a little bit to see with some truth. You know, I had a I've had a string of bad managers, but you know, I've learned something from all of them. And one of the worst managers I ever had, actually, I taught learned I taught a really good lesson from him, which was. He would, when he get down to the final, like two, three or four candidates, he'd actually invite him out for lunch. This was back in the days before remote work. But he'd invite him yeah. for lunch. And at lunch, you know, this was in Australia at the time, and the culture there was very European. So you might have a glass or two of wine at lunch, right? And so you do that because then you find like all the truth would come out, right? They'd lower the walls, they'd lower their barriers, and they'd really tell you about, you know, why they left the company or why, you know, their real feelings about their last boss and all of that. And in that kind of, a lot of people that were strong candidates would show themselves to not be strong candidates. Um, yeah. And so I think you can try to extrapolate that to, to our online world these days, which is I do through those questions. You know, the other one I do then, so we go from that kind of initial questionnaire, filter out of there again, then I do a, a round of initial interviews. And the initial interview is essentially 15 minutes long. And what I'm looking at there is I'm looking to put them on the defensive a bit. I want to see how they react a little bit of pressure because I'm hiring for salespeople. So I just want to see what the hell they do, right? And so on there, we'll get on. We'll do two or three minutes of you know getting to know you. And then I'll, I'll have already decided two or three questions from their questionnaire I want to talk about, right? And I want them to give me more information about. And I'll pick them knowing that I, no matter what they say, I'm going to try to, I'm going to kind of be, you know, a little, you know, counter, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take the counter view to theirs just to see how they deal with it. To see when I tell them, you know, hey, I disagree with this and this is why, what do you think? To see, do they just grovel? Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Or is it like, well, you know, here's why I said this. You know, I understand what you're saying. That's what I want to hear. Right? I don't want to see are they trying to yeah. solve it. They're trying to understand my point of view, all the rest of it. Then the very last thing I do is I get to the bottom and say, well, hey, here's my, here's my yellow flag with you, X. Tell me why I'm right, right or why I'm wrong. All right. And then let them do it. So again, like I make it a little more like a sales, you know, you know, process, right? So like yeah. instead of being, yeah, yeah, everything's great, everything's great, everything's great, like, you know, your your prospects are are not looking to give you their money. You've got to convince them. So this goes back to your point, which is a great point of I'm looking to say no, tell me why I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. And so I'm giving them that opportunity. And that's just, you know, some things I've learned over time just to kind of filter that specific position out. Right. Yeah. Other positions, obviously, engineers, there's testing you can do and all kinds of things. But I still want to do the same thing. Right. I want to see not just you have a track record of success, not just you have the bona fides on your resume, but can you actually handle the real world stuff? Right. So, you know, can you give me an example in programming? You know, we've hired a lot of developers, you know, can you give me an example of where you were, where they changed the type of programming language they're using and how that affected you? Right. And then they say, here's an example. And so it's about putting them in as close to real life situations as possible during the recruiting process to have a better understanding of how they're going to deal with it in the real world. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Perfect. And then okay. the last thing I think is important is I think it's onboarding. So this is where I think most people get this wrong. 
And, you know, I do think corporate gets a lot of things right. You know, they get a lot of things wrong, but they get some things right. And one of the things they get right is this whole idea of onboarding, of bringing custom, you know, you know, new employees on and kind of getting this stuff. We ease people into jobs, though, is the problem. And so I think that's another problem in sales where we know that activity is going to be important, that work ethic is important. We want to set the example from day one of what's required of them. And I think the best way to do that is, is to have a clear 30, 60, 90 pl day plan and for them to be a part of generating that plan. So that first week when you bring someone on, absolutely train them on the, on the product and on the company values and you know, all that kind of good stuff. Right. But 100% also like do some role playing, you know, let them shadow you on some on sales calls, let, you know, review the, the, the highs and the lows of the job, make them build their 30, 60, 90 day plan of how, with the activity levels of what they're going to do, what they're going to focus on so they can actually do that. Then that becomes your roadmap for managing them for that first 90 days. Hey, you said we we're going to do this in the first 30 days and we're only here. Why? Right. And you're not generally making a decision in the first 30 days unless, you know, it's a real clear no. But by 60 days, you should know whether someone's on track or not. How well have they adapted to the real life situations? How well have they, you know, been and you'll get some stuff wrong, too. And that's OK. You can be kind of fluid. But having a roadmap, a plan is important rather than saying, great, this is how much you get paid. And I expect you to do $10,000 a month, $100,000 a month, whatever that number is. And oh, shit, three months in, you're not doing it. OK, well, why? Well, it's probably because you didn't have a clear plan of their activity levels. You didn't have a clear way of measuring them. And you waited until revenue came you know, three to four months later. And then you find out. Well, waiting for three to four months to find out someone's doing their job is a ridiculous way to lead people. And so you need to have a kind of clear plan on what that looks like and have them involved in building the plan so they buy into it. Yeah. No, I, it's very, very similar. One, one of the things I, I, I always tend to say in the beginning when you hire new staff, and it depends a little bit how how junior or how senior they are, but I always say like build build this either one or three month plan or something like have a little bit longer one. But I also try and always encourage people to give people something right out of the gate, something that's really easy to uh, not really easy, but something that's not too difficult to solve. Because the the one thing that I've I've seen it on myself, but I've seen it on other people as well, is when you join a brand new company, like when you you know, when you join a new business and, you know, you don't know anything, you don't know anyone in the business, uh, everything can seem a little bit overwhelming. And I've always seen very good results from getting people like an early win to kind of boost their confidence and sort of boost their, their, their faith a little bit. Uh, so so that's, that's, that's definitely one thing. But I, I totally agree with having sort of a clear guideline for them because, again, also for, for people, the thing is when you join a new business, you don't know, like, what does Bossman think? Am I good enough? You know, am I struggling? And you also don't know the person you're working for, right? I mean, like, so you don't know, yeah. like, a lot of times I hear complaints from people like, oh, I, you know, I, by this time, I expect them to take more initiative. I expected them to be doing more on their own. But they don't realize that all the signals they're selling to them is, hey, wait for me, right? Like, yeah. hey, come clear everything by me first before you do anything. I wonder why they're not taking initiative. Well, not taking initiative because you might be saying take initiative. But what you're really saying is clear everything through me. Right. Yeah. And so like you, it, it, almost every business problem is the business owner's fault. Right. I mean, like that's the reality of it. Like that's the yeah. reality of the buck stops here. You're the boss. But too too early in, in hiring and, and team leadership, especially in sales, we want to blame the person. We want to blame the employee. Right. And so it's just it's easier to do that. I think just it's human nature. And, and so generally what I say to people is like, look, I love the quick win. I think it's a great way to look at it. The other one's like start giving them autonomy early. Right. Say, hey, yeah. here's the end goal. Here's a framework I've seen work be successful, but I want you to take ownership of this. Right. You tell me what you want to do. 
Let, you yeah. tell me what you think. The, let's test it, right? And the idea of like the 36 is like, hey, we're going to wait 30 days to do something. We should be coaching and, and doing, you know, one-on-ones weekly until that point, right? And so like, hey, we were going to try this cadence for outbound lead gen. Or hey, we were going to try tweaking our demo this way. Or we're going to tw- try tweaking our proposal this way. And we're going to tr- try tweaking this over this way. How's that going? What would you change? What should we change? And you bring ideas to this meeting, not just sit back and wait for me to tell you what to do. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would say, so my philosophy is very clear. You should do one-to-ones every week with everyone okay. always. Yep. So even after the first couple of weeks. No, I agree. So I'm, yeah. a one-to-one, I'm a one-to-one weekly and all hands once a month. I think that's the that's the right cadence, I think, in most in most situations. Cool. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. And what, what do you see from, so so a lot of business owners, they, they get started with this and they actually find a great candidate, right? What What's sort of the next... Uh, sort of, you, you go to the onboarding, someone is there. What's the process from there onwards? Is it just easy going or like no, what, what's, what's so the challenge? Specifically, so yeah, I love it. So, because let's go back to this is a great kind of segue from the one on one. The one on one should be about them, right? And so, what I see too often on one on ones is this is where we start talking about like, you know, you know, specific opportunities with specific customers or specific problems in the business, or whatever. And so really the one-on-one should be about them and their growth and like how we can like, create those resources and tools to be successful. You need to have other specific laid out meetings in a weekly basis. So like a pipeline review is a perfect example. So we have a separate meeting every week, which is called the pipeline review. Now it's only one person. It's probably you and that person working, right? But once it starts getting bigger, bigger, your team gets bigger, this becomes even more important. So, you know, we track these things in the CRM, but what we want to do is we want context around that. So we come to these pipeline reviews with this idea of like, great, at what stage, and we start from the you know, bottom of the funnel to the top of the funnel. So great, you've got three people in this kind of final decision stage, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, why are they there? What have we done in the last week to move them forward? And we're talking specifically and tactically about sales opportunities. That shouldn't happen in a one-on-one. That should be a separate thing, right? The one-on-one right. should be about them. And so you do a pipeline review, for example. You might do, you know, so, and again, that's a weekly thing. So pipeline reviews weekly, one-on-ones weekly. And this is, I think, the biggest mistake people make when they do management is they think that I'm going to hire people and it's going to free up all this free time for me to do other things. It doesn't. It just shifts your time focus. So instead yeah. of spending time selling, you're now spending time leading and managing. Right? You're spending time building systems, building operations out, building the things that you don't have for them to be successful for you to scale to that next stage. Right? And so like, it, and that's, I think, the biggest, like, the, not just hiring early, but hiring at any point, this misconception. I tell people all the time that actually when you hire someone, that first 30 days or so, you're going to be doing more work than you've been doing right now because right? you're going to be doing your current day-to-day job plus helping this other person do their job right? at a pretty high level, you know, pretty big intensive kind of time commitment for them. And so understand that understand that's what's going to happen and you know and then in that say great how do i become more efficient over time sure but really that efficiency is not you know all advice that's like very you know absolute is almost always wrong right so if anyone has this is the only way to do things they're trying to sell you something right or this is the one way it's probably wrong um so i think that you know you have to be open to some ideas and to some other ways of doing things but you know it's like the whole you know meetings are evil kind of idea yeah, bad meetings are, are bad, but good meetings are good, right? I mean, so just have an agenda for those meetings. And that's why I think it's very important. You know, I'd rather do a 20-minute meeting every week than do a really poor 60-minute meeting, you know, once a month, right? And so, like, it's just figure out exactly what the goal of that meeting is and how you can do it and then what you want to get out of it. And don't let them go much longer than that. 
and it can happen, but you're probably going to be adding more standardized calendar meetings to your calendar when you've got people. And this is why when you go for big companies, like when you work in, you know, Fortune 500 or, you know, larger, medium, large corporates, why, you know, why they put kind of limits on the number of direct reports you can have. Because you can only have so many direct reports before that like, dominates your entire day, right? And, and, so, and that's yeah, and that's and that's the same for me. I mean, I, I give the same recommendations when when you're in a smaller business, right? Like you, you should only ever manage small. Yeah, it's so. more important when you're small because you're also probably the in-house accountant and the HR manager and everything else as well, right? So like you know, you, you have to start thinking. Wait, at what point? Why? How many salespeople do I start need, need to have a team leader or a sales manager or somebody else? And, and again, you don't have to have all these answers right. You're going to get most of them wrong, but you need to start thinking that way, right? Yeah. And, and again, like this is that absolute advice. Meetings are bad. Flat organizations are good, blah, blah, blah. No, like it just, it depends, right? On you, on your business, on your people, on a lot of things. Um, but yeah. even in flat organizations, you'll start to see once a section of the business, once a business unit starts growing, There'll be leaders there. There has to be, yeah. you know, and then your job becomes going from being the sales driven sales, founder driven sales to being then kind of found that you go from salesperson to sales manager to head of sales to CEO. Right. But the only way you can do that is those roles get filled by other people because they can't just, you can't just remove those roles. Right. They just get filled by other people as you grow the business. Totally. And I like the, the way I look at it from a, a management standpoint, right. Is I, I, in most situations, I tell people to start building sub teams as soon as possible because one of the things that happens with a lot of entrepreneurs is again like if you're trying to manage you know two or three sales people a bunch of ops people and you know a, a bunch of people everywhere like suddenly you have 10 15 people reporting straight to you and that doesn't work one of, one of the key things for me is that like one of the most difficult things in a new business is training good managers now, both because there's not a ton of good management training out there, but also very much because it takes time. Like someone who isn't a nat natural manager, it takes time to train them. Like if people haven't done it before, you know, they need time to adapt. And it's so much easier managing one or two people than it is suddenly having a team of 30 people, right? You're right. And it is a different skill set, right? You go from managing yourself to managing a person to managing a manager. And all of those take different skill sets. And they all yep. take different focus, right? And so I also, you know, the most powerful book, people ask me all the time, the best book I read. I wrote a bit, read a book many, many years ago when I got my, take my first management role in the 90s. Uh, it was called First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham, who went on to write like the Strengths Finder and other things he's much more famous for. But that First Break All the Rules was awesome. And the whole premise on this book is there's, the, I think, Gallup or someone took this poll of like high-performing business units, regardless of their industry, regardless of all these kind of things and what they had in common. There's like 10, 12 key traits but a couple ones that stuck with me one was you know employee satisfaction comes from them being able to do something they feel they're good at every day right and so once you take someone and say hey you're good at this maybe you can do something all day you hate like that's going to lead to bad employee satisfaction the other was don't treat people the same right people aren't the same so this was you know during the 80s 90s you know aughts when all of a sudden it came very much about participation all these kind of things and that's great but the reality is is like People's personalities are different. Their temperaments are different. How you can talk to them is different. It's, it's, it's truly, this is where the coaching metaphor plays really well. If you lead athletes, some need attaboys, slaps on the back, you know, some need to be, you get in their face and you have to figure out who they are and everyone's a different and it takes time to figure that out, right? And it takes time to figure out the kind of, it can't just be, this is my leadership style. This is my management style, bend to me or you don't work here. 
Like that's not the way to be a good leader, right? Yeah. The way to be a good leader is like, hey, yeah, this is where my natural style is. So I'm naturally going to be you know, attracted to people that get do well this style. But there are really high performers out there that can, would be really great if I, if I change a few things about myself, right? If I soften some of those hard edges, if I kind of did some of these things differently, I could get someone who could be a star, a star, or I could just be the my way or the highway and just get used to it. And generally, those are, that's not a good long-term strategy, especially when you get into the managing managers piece. Because, 100%. You know, because you'll jump, you know, if you're that kind of person, you'll start minimizing your managers, you'll start jumping, you know, let people come directly to you and not follow a chain of command and all those things that sound okay, but they're not like you're sending out these signals internally that I'm the only person that matters still come to me for everything. And then you, you're pissed off that your managers aren't taking enough initiative. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, honestly, I love it. You're the first person that I've ever mentioned my favorite book as their favorite. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> I, I would say is actually, I took away a lot of the same things as you. The, the one thing I took away that was the most important to me from that specific book was very specifically that, you know, that there's people who, who naturally have some skill set that, that people identify with it being more natural managers. But yep. the key thing is, no matter your personality, you can learn to manage yes. very well. The key thing is, don't don't try and mirror what, you know, popular leaders are doing, figure out what works for you and do that. So not just treat everyone as individuals, but also figure out, you know, what is your strength as a manager? How do you become the most valuable manager? Because the biggest thing I see and the reason why I always recommend people this book is because they, they're like, oh, well, you know, Elon Musk is doing things this way. And I'm like, yeah, but are you oh, an asshole right. that's going to that's gonna phone up your staff at 3 a.m. in the morning and right. expect them to answer your phone? No, that's not you. Well, you won't be like Elon Musk, right? Well, that's, that's funny. We had this conversation this weekend about you know, sociopaths and lead as leaders and stuff. And I was saying, look, you know, the problem is we, we model our – sometimes people model themselves on people about like one or two characteristics. They don't miss, they miss the rest of it, right? So like yeah. you know, Steve Jobs, you know – did, did not treat his early employees well, like took a lot of their stock options. He did a lot of horrible things over his career. Yeah, he did. He was visionary in certain areas. Same with Elon. And so I used to talk about, you see, so Jack Welch from GE was like my, the model manager when I was coming up, right? And but then like he, he had things like Neutron Jack because his whole be first or second in our industry to get out meant that he laid off tens of thousands of people. Right. Um, you know, they get, you know, a lot of these big, powerful CEOs, be man or female, they're on their second or third marriage. They don't have relationships with their kids. Like, you know, like you got to look at the whole picture. Right. And so like what drives you to do that is the kind of person that drives you to call your people at three o'clock in the morning because it doesn't matter about them. It doesn't matter about their lives. It doesn't matter about their families. It's, just, it's you all the time. And so that's it. The only thing about the book about treating people different is, I mean, this is, I think, the hardest thing for people to swallow, but it's 100 percent the most important is. You should be spending more time trying to get your B players to A players than your D players to C players or A or B players, right? And so the problem is that's in that's exactly opposite to what we do. We look at a team, we look at the person that's struggling, and we give them all our attention, right? And yeah. so that's cool if they're struggling. You find out quickly they're struggling because they don't have the skills. They don't have this. You can train them up. Awesome. But a lot of times it's just because they're just not going to ever be good at that thing, right? And so we we give this disproportionate amount of time to mediocre or sub mediocre players when we really should be spending that time and attention on our really good players and making them stars. Um, and like, there's just the, the return on that. It's just so much different, so much better for you. Um, then also what that does is it creates a culture of that internally as well, right? It creates that this is 
this is the kind of tr talent you start attracting. This is the kind of thing that's understood. Um, and it's just, it's a much nicer way to, to run your business when now you're, you know, you're, you're focusing on winning, you're focusing on getting better at something you're good at rather than this is focus. And this is why Buckingham then went to the whole strengths finder thing, right? That's because that's the thing he took out of it was like, Hey, focus on your strengths. Don't worry so much about your weaknesses. I make them so they're not, you know, catastrophic, right? If they're that bad, but you know, really you're better off focusing on what you're good at, making yourself great at it. And it's the same yeah. when you run a team. Focus on your good people, try to make them great, not your mediocre people, try to make them good. And uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're pretty much going through all my management training right now. Nice. So that's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's exactly, uh, the, the only one thing is, I like Strength Finder, but I, I've, I, I fell deeply, deeply in love with, with disc behavioral yeah. uh, assessment. Sandler, and Sandler's big on disc too. Sandler tra sales training was really good. And, you know, and, I, and I agree, and I think that, I think disc is also broad enough that it kind of, it does matter. And it's true. Like, I mean, my personality type, I am more outgoing and, you know, I do make decisions like that. Do, do I have some, you know, introspective intellectuals? Sure. Do I have some of this? Sure. But the reality is, is that people do naturally fall in that hunter farmer uh, directive versus, you know, indirect versus this. And so there are definitely those, those buckets. And I agree. And the strength finder, I think, the problem with it is, is that it's just a little, there's too many classifications, right? And yeah. so it's, yeah, I would agree. I mean, the, 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 the fundamental thing for me with DISC have always been a very simple one compared to everyone else is it's very, very easy when you learn it to actually tell people by just looking at them. Like, as I always say, when someone, I don't know, sits down next to me in an airplane, I can generally tell them things about themselves they don't know. Uh, with a lot of people, right? And it's like the, the ability with DISC and the same in interview situations particularly, like the ability to actually tell people's personality very, very simplistically is so easy with DISC when you're good at it. And I think that's where, for me, it just it just beats the hell out of any of the other sort of behavioral uh, systems. Agree. So, excellent. Well, that's, awesome. that sounds really good. Thanks, Mads. I appreciate your time, man. That was a lot of fun. It definitely was. It definitely was. Uh, Damien, if anyone wants to get hold of you, what's the right, uh, what's the right place? Salesability.com. Uh, it's sales and ability all mashed together. No hyphen, no space. It's a .com, obviously. Um, or they can email me. I, I, I read emails. So tell me, send me an email at Damien at salesability.com or .co. Either one will work. Um, follow me on Twitter, Damien Thompson. Uh, yeah, get in touch with me. If they got a question, I'm happy to answer any questions real quick quick questions and, and help out and if anyone wants to kind of a deeper conversation around how to build a sales team or when they're ready to build a sales team or not um yeah just go ahead and reach out and i'd love to help in any way i could amazing well thank you very much for being on the podcast and see you all next week thank you for listening to the mad singers management podcast please leave a review it means the world to us you can also learn more about management at madsingers.com